may be seated. Will you turn with me your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 2? First John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 24 through 27 this morning, but we'll begin reading at verse 18 to set the context. Abiding in the truth, or perhaps better, the, uh, the truth abiding in us. So begin reading at verse 18, 1 John chapter 2. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. By which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, again, we are thankful for your word and we are thankful for your teaching. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the gospel that is proclaimed. And thank you that as your word goes forth, things really do happen. That you really do work in the hearts of your elect to save them, to save sinners. That you really do work in the hearts and lives of your redeemed to sanctify and strengthen. And so we ask today that, you would be strength, uh, that we would be strengthened by your word. That you would strengthen and encourage and uplift and convict your people. That you would work by your power as the word goes forth. Thank you for that external means. But again, we're thankful for the internal working by the Holy Spirit. Thank that the Holy Spirit is the one who effectually calls. He's also the one who effectually illuminates as well. And we ask that today that you would give us that spirit of wisdom and spirit of revelation to know your power, to know the truth, to know what we need to know, to grow in the knowledge of you, that you would send forth your spirit to help us better understand what your word says Thank you so much for your word. Thank you that that you are the author of it. Thank you for the sum of the parts. Thank you for the heavenly matter that we get to study and learn. But we know that we need your spirit to bear witness in our hearts concerning these things. And so we pray that your spirit would work amongst us this day. So help us by your spirit to understand. Help us by your spirit to abide in the truth. Help us by your spirit not to be deceived when there are threats and there are many. And so help us to know that truth, we pray. Help us by your spirit to glorify you now as we come and hear your word. Help us to be awake and attentive for what you have for us today. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, last week I mentioned the importance of the creeds of the church. We talk a lot about creeds and confessions in our church. 
Uh, the creeds of the church teach us what must be believed. Confessions teach us what ought to be believed. And even within our confessions of faith, we believe in the, we confess the London Baptist Confession, uh, Second London Baptist Confession. Even within that confession, there are things that must be believed. But the key creeds throughout the history of the church, there are four of them. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the definition of Chalcedon. Again, these creeds teach us what must be believed concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, concerning the Trinity. These all assert the importance of Christ and the work of Christ as well. Because you see, if you deny that Jesus is God, you deny the Father. And if you do not have the Father or the Son, you do not have eternal life. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ who saves, you also then deny salvation as well. And notice this is the problem that we see in 1 John. Even before the creeds are written, we see that the truth still mattered, even before it's formulated later on in the history of the church. How can we identify who Antichrist is? How can we identify one who is a threat to the church? Well, it's by knowing the truth, by knowing our God, by knowing our Christ, Because if we do not have the truth, then we do not have eternal life. And if we do not have eternal life, then we do not have any assurance at all. And remember, 1 John is all about assurance. 1 John is all about encouragement. 1 John is all about reminding the people of God where we can find our hope and our strength and our assurance. And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes that the believers might know they have eternal life against the threat of false teachers. And so he structures his letter much like a sermon. And so we see the epilogue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that opening introduction. It's all founded upon the gospel, founded upon Jesus Christ and what he has done, founded upon the word of life, who is God, who then communicates life to his people, communicates in how we see the Father. It is through the one who is the word. Then he goes on to give us several tests concerning how we can have assurance, how we walk in the light. And then he does drive to the point where he talks about what must be believed. That is, we must know what is right and true against the threat of those who teach what is not right and true, but teach what is wrong. So he gives an assurance by way of warning in verses 18 through 23. And he continues that assurance by way of warning or part of that whole context in verses 24 through 27. The same problem remains in verses 24 through 27. Deception by false teachers. The problem of false teaching. The problem of people who teach things that are inaccurate. And, in, and when they do so, it only brings a false assurance. And so we must be watchful against false teaching. We must be watchful against antichrist. And the way in which we do that is by way of knowing the truth that we see in scriptures and then helpfully summarized in the church as God has worked throughout the centuries, because falsehood only brings false assurance. And so in verses 24 through 27, John reminds his hearers to let the truth abide in them and to let the spirit of God abide in them to remain in the truth, to remain in the spirit, or perhaps better that they would, uh, that they would abide in the truth and the spirit in them. It's an encouragement by way of exhortation. Let the truth abide 
in you. And we'll look at this abiding in the truth or abiding in the spirit under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the command to let us abide in the truth, verses 24 and 25. Let us abide in the truth in verses 24 and 25. And then secondly, we will see, let us remember that God abides in us, verses 26 and 27. Just to boil down more simply, abiding in the truth and God abiding in us. So abiding in the truth, God abiding in us. So let's first look at let us abide in the truth in verses 24 and 25. And so we see abiding in the truth that we hear in verses verse 24a. And again, the context John is saying that there are many antichrists who have now come. There's much anti-Christian teaching that has emerged even in the first century. And there's going to be many anti-Christian teachings throughout the centuries. And even these men denied the Trinity. These men denied what we call the hypostatic union. When we say hypostatic union, we just mean that in the one person of the son, there are two natures, the union in the person. There's no mixture between the natures. There's no confusion of the natures, fully God and fully man. And so those things are all in view here in the book of first John. See how theology is important. See how Trinity is important. See how Christology is important. It's important when it comes to the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. And so he says, therefore, after he says in verse 23, he who acknowledges the son has the father also the truth of the Trinity, father and son. Therefore, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. The idea of abiding. The idea of remaining, the idea of continuing in is prevalent throughout John's gospel and the book of first John. It is remaining in that sphere, not departing from that sphere in which one is in. Uh, You might not know this, or maybe you do. I'm not really a people person. I don't know why I became a pastor. I love people, but I need to be away from people to get uh, rest and rejuvenation. So I like to be at home. I'm a homebody. I like being uh, in my own sphere of influence. I don't like to leave it. That's what he's saying here. We're not supposed to leave our spheres. We're not supposed to leave our homes. We're not supposed to uh, go away for a long period of time from the things that matter the most. We must remain. We must abide. And notice what we must abide in. You that which you have heard from the beginning. He's used this already, this terminology and this language from the beginning. He's used the idea of beginning in his gospels as well. Sometimes it can refer to the beginning of the world, like in John chapter 1. But it also can refer to the beginning of Christ's ministry, which is what we see in 1 John 1. It can also refer to what the people at Ephesus had heard, how they heard, how they heard from the apostles, how they've heard the truth, how they've heard something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying here when he says from the beginning, he's talking about the gospel. We preached to you the gospel. We had we were walking with Christ for three years. We saw the object of the gospel in action. This is what you must abide in. You must not depart from the gospel. You must remain in the gospel. You must continue in that sphere of that 
gospel. It's how we have communion. It's how we have uh, fellowship. It's how we know we are uh, redeemed. It is all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what he's doing in verses 24 through 27 is taking what he has said in the prologue uh, in verses 1 through 4. And what he is then doing is applying it here in verses 24 through 27. As we saw the word of life, or he said we saw who is the word of life. We proclaim the word of life to you. And as we proclaim that word of life to you, that then brings communion with God. Now remember, the false teachers were saying we have communion with God, but it's a way not found in the gospel. It was a heretical way. It was a way that actually doesn't bring any communion with God. It was by special, subjective experience rather than the gospel, rather than Jesus Christ, rather than being found in him. And so he's highlighting here that uh, things that are old are better than things that are new. What was handed down to you, what was spoken to you is better than this novel idea that has come about by these false teachers. Antiquity is better than novelty. Henry says truth is older. uh, Truth is older than error. The truth concerning Christ was at first delivered to the saints is not to be exchanged for novelties. So sure were the apostles of the truth of what they had delivered concerning Christ and from him that after all their toils and sufferings, they were not willing to relinquish it. The truth may plead antiquity and be recommended thereby. You know what the antidote to modern Trinitarian heresies are? You know what the antidote to modern Christological errors are? It is to go back. It is to study history. It is certainly to go back to the word of God, but also understand how the church dealt with these issues throughout the ages. As one theologian said, as one friend said, the way forward is the way back. We must be very weary of any sort of novel teaching, especially as it pertains to the Trinity especially as it pertains to Christ, especially as it pertains to the gospel of our Lord and Savior. We all like things that are new. We all like things that are a little different. We all want a little change sometimes. But the best thing for God's people is to know that which is ancient, to know that which is good, to know that which has been dealt with throughout the centuries. And there are a lot of modern Trinitarian Christological errors in our present age. From conservatives, from ones who might say they confess and believe what is said in this confession of faith. But the reality is they had not, they did not keep reading. They didn't keep reading. They didn't understand. They didn't learn and hold fast to what has come before us. If you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat history. That's why the same heresies keep rearing their ugly heads. There is nothing new under the sun. So therefore, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. And then notice what this truth brings in verses 24b and 25. If what you heard from the beginning, the gospel and all that is uh, all that entails, if that abides in you, you also will abide in the son and in the father. What's the apostolic witness? We have fellowship with the Father and the Son. 
What are these apostolic challengers? What's their problem? They deny the Father and the Son. Again, you see how important Trinity is. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. We don't confound the persons. This is from the Athanasian Creed. We don't confound the persons. We don't say the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father and the Son uh, is the, the Holy Spirit. We distinguish by their person, yet we believe in one God. We don't divide the substance. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And yet there is one God. Notice Trinitarian heresy that they are teaching here. And notice the importance of it for the people of God. If you don't have the Son, then you don't have the Father. If you don't have the Son, then you don't have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as well. And the comforting thing is how we dwell with God, how we have communion with God. It is Trinitarian and it is founded upon the truth. It is founded upon Jesus Christ. How do we have union and communion with God? It is in the gospel, not secret, esoteric, special revelation, which is what these men were teaching. The false teachers were teaching. But John is saying, here is the truth. Here is God, and we abide in him. You also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And as he said in chapter 1, we have communion with the God, our God and Father, and Jesus Christ, according to verse 3 of chapter 1. So we abide in God. God remains in us, and we in him. And these other false teachers were saying, here's how you abide in God. But in reality, they have no union with God and no communion with God. The only way you have that is through faith in Christ. The only way you have that in a positive, blessed way is through the gospel of our Lord and Savior. And what God does in that gospel, the Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. We see, uh, the, we see God bringing about Redemption, Father, Son, and Spirit through the work of the Son. And so we have God. We abide in him. We are remain. That's a promise. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will remain and abide in the Son and in the Father. We don't, always, we don't feel it, dear brother, do we? But it remains to be true. If you've believed upon him, God abides in you and you in and with God. And as we abide in him, the one who is life, he has promised to give us eternal life. Isn't that what he says in verse 25? And this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. Later on in 1 John 5.20, at the end of the letter, he says, and this is a good passage to highlight the deity of Christ. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding and we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This, referring to Christ, is the true God and eternal life. What is eternal life? That they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And when we think about the idea of life, God has life in himself, doesn't he? He doesn't have any life derived from anything else. He has perfect, blessed life in himself. He is life itself. 
And then he created life and he gives life. And all of life in this present created world is be given because of him. As Paul says in Acts 17, we live and move and have our being. The only reason you are, are alive today is, A, God made you. And the only reason you are still breathing today is because God is the one who sustains temporal life. Our life is derived from him, isn't it? God does not need any life from us, for he has life in himself. Yet he was pleased to make life. He was pleased to create. And then after that creation... Namely, man decide to rebel against the good things that God has given to us. Notice how he says, sends the one who is the word of life. And that word of life then brings what? Eternal life for people that sought death. Adam sought death. And yet Christ came into this world. He was sent in his mission to die for wretched sinners like us that we might have eternal life. Isn't that the promise for those who believe upon Jesus? You shall have eternal life. If you believe what is said in the scriptures is true. If you don't just, uh, you might think about it, you might understand it, but you must believe and believe it to be true. That is what faith is. Believing upon Christ, looking upon him. And if you believe upon him, you shall have eternal life. Because only God can bring eternal life. And this is the promise that we have as believers in Christ. We have blessed eternal life. And so what we ought to do because of this is let this truth abide in us. Let the truth of God abide in us. Let the scriptures abide in us. Let theology abide in us. I'm going to harp on theology once again here in just a moment. But we ought to appreciate the life-giving power of scripture, dear brethren. When the word is read, something happens, doesn't it? When the word is preached, something happens. When God said, let there be light, it wasn't just mere words, but it brought an effect, didn't it? We saw his power by speaking. The same thing is true is when the word goes forth. God actually is working. He's either hardening the hearts of the reprobate or he's softening the hearts of the elect. And those who have been redeemed and saved, he really is working and feeding and causing God's people to grow. That's why we emphasize the importance of the word of God. We say the word of God is the external means that God uses. God works through the scriptures. We read it. We understand it. We hear it preached. And then we're going to see under our second point, the internal working of the Holy Spirit. But as the word goes forth, things happen. He teaches He reproves, he corrects, he instructs. That's why we harp on the importance of gathering as the brethren, the importance of being under the preached word, because something happens to us when we worship. Something happens to us when the word of God is proclaimed. God really does speak when we hear it, and God really speaks When we read it, God really saves as the word goes forth. Our confession of faith, chapter 14, concerning saving faith, says this very thing. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ, the internal working in their hearts, and then is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, internal 
and external. So that's my marching orders, is to preach the gospel, to preach the truth, and trust and believe the Spirit is internally working. Trust and believe the Spirit is actually changing you and I as we hear His Word preached. And we'll hopefully see that change in our lives, but God really works. And I love what William Whitaker says. He is a Protestant around the time of John Calvin, during the time uh, just post or after the Reformation. Uh, he was an Anglican, but he was Protestant. He was Reformed in a lot of ways. And his disputation on Holy Scripture is fantastic. He talks about interpretation, talking about the order of... It's fantastic. And he says, reading, talks about what we do when we read it, and here's what happens, and here's how we... All right, if I, he says, reading does, as it were, set the solid food at the lips. Meditation breaks down and chews it. What does it mean? How, what is he saying? What is, God, what is God trying to convey to us? Prayer then gains relish, and contemplation is the very sweetness itself, which gives us pleasure and refreshment. That's what God's word is meant to drive us to. We read it, we think about it, we pray it over, and as we understand the object of our love, there's this sweetness as we consider our God all the more. Something happens when we read. I hope that happens for us. You know, we live in a fallen world, and it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen as often as we would like. Perhaps it's rarer than we would like, but the point is... God does work in the scriptures, and we would want to pray that for us as we read it, as we hear it, as we understand it, that it would gain a sweetness and refreshment and a pleasure as we hear it. We need the word, and we need the life-giving uh, uh, spirit and the life-giving word that God gives, because there are threats to the church, right? There are those who want to take that away. There are those who want to remove it, and so we must let the truth abide in us. Read God's word. Read good theology. If you don't have a lot of time, just read this over and over again. Just commit it to memory. Why don't you do that? That's a good idea too. I haven't done that, so I'm being hypocritical, but you should do it. So commit it to memory. That's a wonderful thing. But read it over and over and over again. Read good books as well. We don't have a lot of time, but read good books. Not bad books. Hopefully that's clear. Read good stuff. It's meant to encourage and uplift us. And brethren, read the creeds. The creeds are not meant to be, and the confession is not the final authority, and our confession even says that. We must recognize what men have confessed throughout the ages. We must recognize two thousand years, is she still not the spirit-changed community? Is she still not the spirit-enlightened community? Does she still not have things to say throughout the ages? And has God, God not worked through her? And the reason I say that is because there is this view of no creed but the Bible. I say that in a very sarcastic way. I'm a sarcastic guy if you don't know me that much, but I can be sarcastic uh, it's probably because, I don't know why, I just, some things bother me, but that's okay. No creed but the Bible drives me nuts. I'll just say that right away. You know why? It's hubris. It's arrogance. To never consider what generations past thought, to think we have figured it out, that's a one-way ticket to heresy. 
That's a one-way ticket to some sort of anti-Christian teaching. Again, I'm not saying that creeds and, you know, uh, and the confessions are above Scripture, but they help us understand Scripture. And they help us think through what God's Word says. And it is arrogance never to consider them. That's why, if I must confess, the newer commentators I'm going away from less and less. I like the old boys a little bit more because they understood this more. There's a richer theology. There's, there's more precision in their understanding. And there's still a lot of heartwarming application because they understood and brought all these things together, especially as we're considering today the word of God. They understood the external means that the word is, but also understood that the internal working is vital and important and perhaps more important as well. The spirit works with the word. And so our first point really was that external aspect, letting the truth abide in us. And our second point then moves then to the internal aspect where he must let us remember that God abides in us. Verses 26 and 27. So onto our second point, let us remember that God abides in us. Verses 26 and 27. So again, this is that internal aspect he's going to draw out. But he, again, he does so in the context of threat. Verse 26. These men I have written to you, or these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. He writes uh, concerning their joy. He writes they might know certain things. And he writes because there are those who try to deceive. Brethren, it is the last hour. And as I highlighted last time, it's been the last hour for the past 2,000 years. And one thing that characterizes the last hour are antichrists and anti-Christian teaching. And again, same heresies throughout the centuries, just different faces. It's because those different faces didn't, didn't read their history. And that's when the creeds were created. And when I say create, I don't mean creeds created the truth, but they go to Scripture to summarize the truth. They find the truth in Scripture and help us speak in a way that is right and good. And so, and usually the creeds arose as people were forced to wrestle with issues, right? Here comes Arius, and he says, there was a time when the sun was not. Well, how do we deal with that? This is how we get the Nicene Creed or the, Ni or the Creed of Nicaea, I guess, technically, and then moves on to be the Nicene Constantinople. Uh, I can't say it right. Constantinopolitan. I'm not saying it right. 381, uh, that creed. But it's an amalgamation of those two creeds put together as they further define uh, the holy and blessed Trinity. And the reason they do so is in the face of threats. But then there are threats. And one tension that a pastor has I want to encourage, I want to uplift, and if there's a true believer who needs a bit of conviction, I want to, you know, give a little, you know, kick if I need to. But there's also those who are downright heretics and wolves. And what's interesting is, you've heard the quote from Calvin where he says, pastors must speak a certain way to the flock and a certain way to wolves. That comes from him commenting on these verses. And here's what he says. He says, when we hear that he wrote concerning seducers, we ought always to bear in mind that it is the duty of a good and diligent pastor, not only to gather the flock, but also to drive away wolves. For what will it avail to proclaim the pure gospel if we connive at the impostures of Satan? If someone comes in and says something that goes against God's word and goes against the Trinity, they're going to have to deal with me. 
and they're not going to like to have to deal with me. I know I'm a typically, people say I'm a nice guy, and I, I can come across grumpy, though, sometimes, and that's okay, but I'll, need, I'll be a shepherd if I need to be, and I'll fight a wolf if I need to fight a wolf. And there's a lot of, that's one of the reasons we have certain requirements when it comes to people who stand in this pulpit, right? If someone wants to be a pastor in our church, they must subscribe to this confession of faith. They must have some theological acumen and understanding to be able to stand in this pulpit so they don't butcher the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christ. And even men who might come in from other churches, there's some ecclesiastical recognition and some closeness to what we have to say. I, I've had a pedo-baptist preach in our church before, one who baptizes babies. I, it's wrong. It's not right. I just tell them, don't preach on pedo-baptism when you come to our church. But we're happy to have them here uh, in that way. But there are some people I would just not have in this pulpit. And that's probably why it takes time you know, some people are like, why are we taking so long to find an elder? This is why. Because we want theological acumen, time-tested. We want all those things in view for us. Because we must be able to proclaim and gather, but also deal, and ward, uh, deal with and ward off wolves uh, as well. And so that's what he's doing here. You have to beware. Be watchful against these men who tried to deceive you, tried to take away what is right and good. Then he moves into verse 27 to that internal aspect. You have the truth, but verse 27, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. The anointing that abides, verse 27. And notice we see the anointing that has been received. And we talked about this when we looked at verse 20. You have an anointing. That anointing refers to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's other language used in scripture to, uh, concerning the indwelling of the spirit in God's people. So then we talk about effectual calling. The spirit changes our hearts and lives. But if you believe on Christ, the spirit indwells you. The promise of the spirit has been given. The down payment of the spirit has been given. The seal of the spirit has been given. And the first fruits of the spirit has been given. Or the anointing of the spirit has been given. It's how we know what is right and true. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have the truth as we've received it from the Holy Spirit. You see, there's the, again, the external word and the internal working of the Holy Spirit. John 16 also speaks in a similar way as well. And so he's saying, these men try to deceive you, but you have received from him. You've received from Christ. You've received from the Holy One. You've received from the Father the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth and to illumine our hearts and minds concerning that very truth. And one thing that's very interesting is anointing probably alludes back to Exodus 29, talking about the anointing of the priest. The anointing of Aaron and his sons, the setting apart of that office who had the truth. What he's saying here by this language of anointing is similar to what Peter says when he talks about a priesthood of believers. That is, we have the truth. We know the truth. He's speaking in new covenant ways. We don't need secret knowledge. Because we have the truth in God's word and we now have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on all of God's people. Doesn't mean we're doing away with the ministry. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But the idea of anointing and knowing is also a new covenant promise. 
Jeremiah 31, verse 33. You do not have to tell your neighbor. You don't have to say to your neighbor, know God. Why? For they shall know God, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Again, it does not mean we don't proclaim it. It doesn't mean we don't preach. It doesn't mean we don't need the, it doesn't mean we don't need the ministry. But it's talking about a new covenant blessing. Though you shall know God, they shall have the truth, the internal working that God brings. And the implication is that these men who taught Christological heresies, who claim they have knowledge of God, who claim they have communion with God, don't have the spirit at all, do they? They do not have the spirit of God because if one has the spirit of God, they will confess that Jesus is Lord. And if they do not confess that Jesus is Lord, then they do not have the Holy Spirit. He's going, he's talking against the claims of special revelation. Again, we're not against the ministry. Some people could take this passage and affirm and use it to say, see, we don't need a ministry. See, I just need special knowledge. See, it's just a subjective experience. But in reality, what he's saying is going against that. What he's saying is you have the truth and the spirit who works with that truth. You don't need some special esoteric language. And in fact, one of the qualifications of a minister is to what? Teach the people. Guide the people that the spirit would work with the word, but also to rebuke those who contradict what God says. That's why pastors need to keep reading. Pastors need to keep reading theology. Pastors should be theologians, not just pastors, right? Pastor theologian. I mean, that's the description of what a pastor should be. We live in an anti-intellectual age, and I'm going to talk more about this tonight in the book of Hosea. But we live in an anti-intellectual age, and it has seeped into pastors. Pastors just don't know anything anymore. I'm sorry to say it like that. I'm trying to remedy that, and that's why I went to seminary and grow in all those things. But you need to keep reading. Pastors need to keep reading. You should keep reading too, but I should really keep reading because I'm supposed to guide and teach when it comes to the word of God and the truth. If I stop reading, please fire me. I'm not kidding. If I stop reading, I stop growing, stop learning, please find somebody else to be your pastor because that is not what a pastor, uh, not the conduct or the proper uh, diligence a pastor um, He's going against diligence. He's not a diligent man who does not, uh, who does not read. So uh, qualified minister, we have the truth that we have received. We still need the ministry, but it is the spirit who works, who abides in you. He abides in us, and you do not need that anyone teach you. Uh, but the teaching still is needed. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, the anointing is received, the spirit is received, and the spirit teaches us. Again, all things pertain to the truth, the content of the letter, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he is and what he has done for us. And what he's saying here is you, brethren in Ephesus, you know the one true God, not these false teachers, they deny the truth, but you are the ones who have it. So abide in it as the spirit continually teaches you what is true. As he teaches you concerning all things and teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. So we have the spirit. The spirit teaches us and the spirit teaches us what is true. We are growing in our understanding. 
We are growing in our theology. Our Christian walk ought to be characterized by faith-seeking understanding. We ought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. That is, we know the truth, we know what is pleasing to God, we believe it to be true, and then we know how we ought then to love our God. And we have the supernatural work of the Spirit to do that very thing. In fact, again, our confession talking about scripture uses first john 2 verses 20 and 27 to highlight that need for the inner witness that inner work of the spirit chapter 1 paragraph 5 he talks about the the beauty of scripture the testimony the consent of all the parts you know scripture is the best book whether you believe it or not i mean just the unity of it how it's written it's just Fantastic, or at least you, you, you should think so. But then he goes on to say at the end of chapter 5, or they go on to say at the end of chapter 5, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bear witness, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That's how teaching works, doesn't it? There is an external word that is proclaimed, and then the Spirit then works internally, and the Spirit who abides in us teaches us and guides us into all truth. He guides us in the Word of God. Whitaker again says, The sum of our opinion is that the Scripture is autopistos, self, uh, self-authenticating. That is, hath all its authority and credit from itself is to be acknowledged, is to be received, and not only because the church hath mind and commanded, but because it comes from God. We certainly know that it comes from God, not by the church, but by the Holy Ghost. And as we abide in him, as we abide in the word, as we abide in the truth taught by scripture, Christ will abide in us. You will abide in him. There's a couple promises he gives here. If you abide in the things you heard from the beginning, the Father and the Son, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. If you abide in the thing in the Holy Spirit, then you will abide in him, namely Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ teaches his people. He teaches us externally with the word and working internally by the Holy Spirit. And so, brethren, because of this, let us not be deceived. Know the word of God, know the truth, and do not be deceived. Again, you don't have to read every book on heresies out there. Just know what is true. Know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So if someone comes along and says, Jesus is not God, you already know, they're wrong. We only have so much time and only so much we can read. Read what is true. Read what is good. Let the truth of God abide in you. And let it abide through the word. Because we see that God really does work through that word. It is that triune working of God that gives us what we need. The Holy Spirit effectually calls. The Holy Spirit actually does save and actually changes hearts and gives new life. I do believe that, as I've already said. I do believe salvation is a supernatural work. But again, my marching orders are to proclaim and give that external call. And the external call to those who do not believe or have not believed is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise is, if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Now, I believe that the Spirit works internally to save hearts, but the call remains the same. 
And if you're an unbeliever here today, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The spirit effectually calls his people. If you believe on him, you shall have eternal life. Thankfully, brethren, the Holy Spirit also effectually illuminates. The prayer before the preaching is called the prayer of illumination, that we would understand God's word more. We would understand what the scriptures say, and we need the help of the Spirit to do so. Even when we read theology, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to do so because we are studying divine matters. And Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 1 as he talks about the true knowledge of God. We've gone through it before in the book of Ephesians, but just a reminder. He prays for them, and what he prays for them is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Brethren, know more about your God. Know more about your God in the word. Know know more about your God by the spirit and live with your God as you know more about him. That's what God's word brings. It is life-changing. It is illuminating. And it gives us the strength that we need to press on in this world because we know what is right and good and true and we know where our help and our strength comes from. Don't be deceived. Let the truth abide in you, and let the Spirit abide in you. Well, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the great plan of redemption. Thank you for sending forth the Word, and thank you for the Word's work in His living and dying and rising again. Thank you for His ascension and current session And thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that the Spirit is the one who um, hovered over the face of the waters. Thank you that the Spirit is the one who breathes life. And the Spirit is the one uh, who inspired your scriptures and your word, who guided the men uh, concerning all things, concerning the truth. And we are thankful that your Spirit still works now to save sinners and to illumine and work and change and cause us to grow into Christ all the more by your spirit. And so help us to be a people, not to be deceived, but help us to be a people that abide in the truth and the truth in us. Help us to be a people that abide in the spirit and the spirit in us. And thank you for the promise that if we have been redeemed and have been saved and believed on Christ, that we do have the spirit and he cannot be taken away. And so we ask and pray you would help us to grow in the truth, help us to love the truth, Help us to love and know who you are, the one true God, and know what you have done. Help our minds to be transformed by your word. Help us to know how we ought to live and help us by your spirit to then do what we ought to uh, in this world. So thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Help us to be a people who don't just have it upon our shelves, but actually read it, who pray through it, who meditate on it and contemplate the blessings that are found in it. If there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls by your spirit. And we pray that you cause us all to grow in the grace and knowledge. And we pray that you be glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.